So, have you heard the most recent news about Nick Cage's next film? No. Yeah? Yeah? No? I said no. No? no you said no? no <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. I mean, I read things pop up on my Facebook feed, but I don't always... Okay, yeah. okay. Well, did you know that... Um, uh, so, I've got an article here from The Hollywood Reporter. Oh, right. Um, and it reads as follows. Nicolas Cage is in talks to star as Nicolas Cage Ooh. in metadrama... The unbearable weight of massive talent. <laughs> now, did he did he ask for that title? I hope he did. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, I'm trying to think now of all the all the all the instances where someone's performed as themselves in mm. a in a in a meta film. Yeah. I suppose Bill Murray in Zombieland is maybe oh, yeah, an example yeah, of probably. that. You know, the... I think what makes this headline even more perfect is the fact that it's got got the headline and then the accompanying image with it is a picture of serious Nick Cage in a suit with a beard right next to another picture of Nick Cage where it's him with a really bushy, messy beard and a cowboy hat. And he's smiling. And he like they actually look like two different people. (laughs) Have you have you seen like when you when you watch something like um like Raising Arizona, or or even Kick Ass where he's got like a moustache and and glasses, he doesn't look like what I generically think as Cage Nick Cage. Look like, yeah, yeah, looks exactly. Like. You know, I think he's got his face is like a blank canvas onto which he can just paint different things, and he looks totally different. Different cageisms. Different, different cageisms. <laughs> yes. Different personas. That'll be cool, though. Yeah. I'm interested in that. I'm so keen. Yeah, so apparently the film revolves around him trying to get a role in a Tarantino movie. <laughs> I wonder if Tarantino will appear, because I think Tarantino oh, would that be... that would the... be amazing. Have you seen that, the, the Muppet Wizard of Oz, where he appears as himself, and he's, like, pitching a... Wait, what? Have he's in the that? Wizard of Oz, Muppet? He's in the, he's, there's, like, a moment where he's there pitching the final battle to Kermit, and it's obviously, it's, like, all Tarantino-centric blood and burning and, and stuff <laughs> like that. And Kermit's there getting, like, shocked and disturbed. No, I've not seen but that. No. It's pretty no. cool because I think I think Tarantino is self, like adequately self-aware that he'd be able to caricature himself in, oh, a, yeah. in a kind of cartoony and funny way. Yeah, I think Tarantino would do a decent job of playing himself though, because I know that I know that he's you know people say that he's not the best actor. I think he's competent enough. Like mm. I think he's better. He's not he's not like the worst actor in the sense that he's as bad as a non-actor, quote-unquote. I yeah. think he's got totally competent acting ability. And I think the fact that he'd be, be potentially playing himself would mean that he could he could do that really well. Yeah. So I hope that would be a revelation <laughs> that comes out about this movie, that Tarantino is also going to play himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sam Jackson should play himself as well. Oh, that'd be great. So you're excited for that movie? I'm so excited. Speaking of um, Nick Cage. Yeah. I ended up saying that uh, that movie I mentioned oh, last yeah. How episode, that? Color yeah, yeah. Out of Space. Um, it <laughs> was a wild ride of a film. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. It is, it honestly, what probably one of the most disturbing films I've seen this really? year. Really? As like in in what sense was it? Just that it was was there the imagery was off, the tone was off. Oh, was... just uh, j- the content of it was just that. <laughs> graphic that it just made me feel like nauseous throughout like like the first half of the movie I'm like okay cool and I wasn't really sure where they were going with it I was like yeah I people been saying this is 
going to be amazing and it's got Nick Cage and it's based on Lovecraft story. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's all right. And then, like, there's a halfway point where just shit hits the fan and you're just like, oh, no, it can't get any worse than this. And you're just like, oh, this is... This is hard to watch. What kind of shit hits the fan? Is it, oh, her- is it like hereditary-style girl puts her head out a window and gets her head knocked it's, off? It's or? worse. It's way worse than oh that. Oh, my it, goodness. It would, it would make, like... Okay, I, I'm going to... Without spoiling it, I'm going to, like, just give a brief hint. There's some really messed-up body horror in this that I think would make Cronenberg, um, like... Blush. Yeah, blush. Yeah. <laughs> I'm keen to see that. Because I, re- I really like... I really like David Cronenberg, and if it's something that's going to trump, say, mm. the half-human, half-fly thing. It's one of those... Uh, there is one particular use of body horror that... When you're thinking about the film... like, Because basically the film is very low budget. like, And they do really well with... Like, considering the film was... I think the film was made for, made for only like 8 mil or something mm. ridiculous like that. Considering the fact that they have such low budget, there's a lot of CGI use and like... It looks really good for an $8 million film. Mm. And the practical effects as well, they do really well with like their makeup and costuming. And there is one particular instance of body horror that when it plays out, I was thinking, okay, due to budgetary constraints, you're only going to see it for two seconds and you're going to hear it off camera kind of thing or they're going to frame it in such a way. But no, they hold, like, on that frame. When, when you say body horror, do you mean, like, a bodily mutation or, or just, just uh, like, a mutilation? Uh, like, just body mutations right. and stuff like that. Because basically... So it becomes part of the makeup. So yeah, speak, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, the general gist of, like, the synopsis is essentially uh, Nick Cage lives out in the countryside with his family. He's a uh, llama. No, sorry. He's an alpaca. I think he's a llama. <laughs> he is a llama. Nick Cage plays a llama. He's a, um alpaca farmer. All right. And, like, you know, it's not doing too well for him because, like, alpacas are hard to, you know, farm mm. as, as opposed to, like, your more conventional animals, like your pigs and cows and stuff yeah. like that. They're a little pigs, bit more... your cows, your sheep, your children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're a little bit more high maintenance. And so, like, he's he he believes they are the future. He is, like, so on board with alpaca farming and stuff like that. Until one day this uh, giant meteorite hit, hit, uh, lands in their, um, in their paddock and it has this kind of, like, purpley glow to it. Hence the title "Color Out of Space" because it's about color coming out of space. So it's a bit like it's a bit like a quite a massy kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and this quite this 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 meteor starts to have an effect on the environment around it. And I'll stop right there. But all else I'll say is I kind of got. I don't know if you ever saw Alex Garland's Annihilation. Yeah, I was about to say that sounds it very, very much yeah. is in the like a more indie version of that mm. but like a lot more gruesome <laughs> do you know do you know what the the lovecraft story it's based on is called or no oh it's it's actually called it's color, called the oh uh, okay color oh. out of space so it's literally a direct habit and is, is it a contemporary like is it it's based yeah now? yeah it yeah is, so yeah. my friend who i saw it with he's huge into lovecraft um he, I don't think he's read the book, but he's mm. read like some like brief summaries of the book, and it is set in like 
Well, Lovecraft, Lovecraft's old man. Oh like he's, yeah, he's yeah. Like it's set like, back when the modern yeah. times were like back when he was alive, mm. um, and they do change a couple of things. Like I don't think the alpacas are in it. I think they swap it for like like cows or something right, like right. that. Well, llamas are a very contemporary animal. You couldn't see those in, La- in, yeah. in Lovecraft. They were too exotic. Yeah, way too exotic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I will also say as well the movie. You know, I I got excited hearing about llamas being in this movie, but there's some weird shit that happens to the llamas, and it just gets gets a little bit much. And I'm like, man, they, they whoever thought of it, well, Lovecraft, what do you, <laughs> what were you on? But um, yes, yeah, so that's that that that's mainly what I've been watching. I do have some other stuff that I've been watching, but um. I'll, I'll palm it off onto you. Um, don't palm me off. That's, no. that's, that's, <laughs> I, I didn't really watch that many that that many things. But one thing that that came out after you and I last saw each other was they released Midsummer came out on Blu-ray. Um, and the the Blu-ray release has got the director's cut on it, which oh, okay. takes the the duration from I think it's like two hours and twenty to about two hours and fifty. So bordering on on three hours and a little longer than two other films that are like, like the the Midsummer. I think the, the theatrical cut was a little longer than you might have expected it to yeah, be. Yeah, it did feel a little bit. Longer. I think the first time I saw it, I was a li- I found it a little more draining than it than I did the second time. I think the second time there was a bit of knowing where things were going and knowing that a lot of the movie was just centered around the experience of traveling to this commune. Mm. The the extended stay that you essentially get when you when I, you're in it for two and a half hours. I I have some friends who do actually have some criticisms of Arias's two films that he's released, and they have actually said that like Arias's two films are like they're great movies to watch once. I disagree with Midsummer. I agree very much with Hereditary. Yeah. Because I, the first time I saw Hereditary, and we'll get to the director's cut of Midsummer in a minute, but the first time I saw Hereditary, I think I was quite shaken by it, mm. um, and it left me thinking for thinking on it for a, for a very long time. I think the second time I came to to watch it, knowing where it ended up, took it took it all away from me. Yeah. So yeah. I think like the first half of Hereditary, even though when once you get to the ending, the revelation is that what's going on is supernatural. Where the first half of Hereditary, that's not made ultimately apparent, yeah. and all this awful shits happening to the family. Mm. There's a bit of you that's just like, oh man, like this is genuinely horrifying because yeah, yeah. you know it's like it could happen. Yeah. But then all, but then when you get the inference come the end of the movie that oh, it was all the spirit of a demon, like <laughs> me anyway. I'm like, no. Nah. Like, <laughs> yeah, so then I watch yeah, it the mate. second time and I'm like, oh the girl losing a head and arms if it's a demon man it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel as uh as threatening as if it was just you know just a real world horrors that would just happen to, to yeah. befall this group tony um, collette though yeah she's great she, i love tony collette she's great australia's own <laughs> australia's <laughs> own um but I, yeah the thing i found with midsummer was like the first time i found it a little long the second time i found that the the two hours and 20 runtime kind of, it kind of felt like it catered to the experience of the movie as, as literally like you were on the journey with that people, with those, with that group. And you were spending time in this commune and you were absorbing the sounds, the sights, the weirdness, which obviously you'd be a little bit adverse to, but you know, it was just quite an, it was almost like a hangout movie in a way because it was like, you were just spending time in Mm. this, in this surrounding. Um, so then when it came to this director's cut, I was, I mean, I was, I didn't get to see it when it came out in cinemas and they released it for a, for a couple of showings. Yeah, the, I, um, I 
didn't get a chance to go see it. There was yeah. only like one or two. I wasn't exceptionally, or... especially like um, drawn to see it either. I think because there were there were a few showings in succession in our local art house uh, outlet. But then it was within a week of the Blu-ray coming out. Oh, so I yeah. was like, well, just, 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 watch just the do Blu-ray. that. Just watch yeah. the Blu-ray. Um, and the things that they add to it, I'm not totally set on. Like, there are a few, there are a few moments that, that work as additional character beats. Like, there's stuff with the Will Poulter's character. Oh, okay. Like, additional, like, comic moments. Yeah. And then there's, there's a moment where that contextualizes something that happens later in the movie. Okay, yeah. But then there's another moment that I think really genuinely takes away from from one of the most divisive sequences in the film. Mm. Um if you've seen the theatrical version, I think now if you watch the 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 DVD, not the Blu-ray, um you'll you'll see it and know what I mean, but there's a really there's a really uh decisive moment about midway through which is literally where the film sort of veers to the right. Yeah, yeah. Um there's a there's a scene that comes after that in the director's cut that that it almost feels like a an exercise in the principle that or a negation of the principle that less is more like yeah, it, it adds yeah. on to that component and it's like well that kind of takes away from the the ultimate uh impact of that first instance mm. um having said that the, the something that really frustrated me is on this on this blu-ray release they don't give the option of sliding between theatrical or director's cut on the blu-ray release it's just the the director's cut which I was mildly frustrated with to be honest okay so like cuz i i think like i'm quite happy with the director's cut like it was yeah, like it was yeah. totally fine but i think i'd like very much to have a a document of of the the version of it that i saw in the, cinema. in the cinemas yeah. and i saw that one twice and i really enjoyed it and so it mm. Yeah, it's the same film, but it feels like the same film with additional mm. stuff that is, you know, a different yeah. experience. So I actually saw a, br- a brilliant tweet the other day that was literally like, when you think about it, Midsummer's essentially about a woman trying to find more female friends. <laughs> and I'm like... And she gets there in the end. So. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think I... I yeah, in terms of the criticism of Ariaster's work, I think Midsummer's like a better movie than mm. Hereditary, genuinely. But I think both of them have got very, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say go far to, to go so far as to say clear faults, but I think there are things in them where you're like, I can definitely see why someone would not like that or find that yeah. lazy or generic. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that there's a lot in his in his movies that are that are creative and mm. new and fresh and innovative and. The man, the all, man's a messed up guy. <laughs> he's got a, he's got a, he's got an inkling for uh, facial mutilation. Oh yeah, that he happens does. a lot in his, yeah, in his films, particularly in, in in Midsummer. Yeah, with, um, two characters and a mallet. And a mallet. <laughs> yeah, and they they re they replay that a few times. Yeah, as well they after do. And you, like, it, I think one of the differences between that and Hereditary is like Hereditary, you see one like mangled head for like five seconds, and then in in Midsummer, you see it happen like over the course of about two or three minutes, <laughs> and you're like, and then they replay it in reverse, and yeah. it looks like an egg, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> unshattering itself. And you're just like, aren't they gonna cut away or, or do yeah. something, anything? That or? sequence, like, a, it, that totally earns its R rating for high, yeah, yeah. high injury, high impact injury detail. 
Yeah. And that when I was watching it the, the second time around, I was watching it with someone and, and my heart literally started beating. Oh, yeah. And she was like, I, I can feel your heart. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting scared. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. I don't want to watch uh, it. I just realized we haven't said it. Welcome to the Pool Room, episode seven. Episode seven. That's oh, fun. my gosh. <laughs> 17 or so minutes into this pod. I mean, we're saying that like people need the validation of what what, what they're listening to. Yeah. Like, like they haven't said it's the pool room. It could be fucking Joe Rogan. Yeah. Or it could be, I don't know, your mum accidentally like left left her audio recorder on. And then... <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that we appeared we appeal to people's mums. Yeah, people's mums. Yeah. Mums. So welcome to the pool room. Uh, I'm Jesse, and with me is Lachlan. Hello. 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 We um yeah we we forgot that we were doing a, yeah, pod, for a we were doing a pod for a second. I mean, how, like uh, genuinely, the only thing that I've watched in the last fortnight has been the Midsummer Directors Cut okay. that, that I want to watch. Um, SBS Viceland just showed an American Werewolf in Paris, oh, and so yeah. that's going to be on on demand. Now I know that that's a much derided sequel to to American Werewolf in London. Yeah, but if it's if I can watch it for free. And I can you say that I've well. seen it. And yeah, I can experience yeah, yeah. it. I'm going to watch it. The other yeah. thing is, my expectations are like fucking buried deep in the ground. Yeah. That the fact that it's probably realistically, it's going to probably end up just being a passable movie that just pales in comparison. To yeah. The first. Yeah. I think it'll be okay. Yeah. I think it'll be an enjoyable experience. Yeah. yeah it should be. Well, um. <laughs> You're trying to find a link. Speaking. I'm of... trying to. I'm trying to find a segue, but I like. I was going to say. Speaking of enjoyable experiences, um, how good are falafels? Ah, <laughs> no, uh, I, I was going to mention one one other thing that I had recently watched. Um, Ooh, okay, go. On. So I sold my soul to a certain streaming service, uh, so that we don't get into legal issues with this company. I'm going to call them Boxfell. <laughs> Now, I I signed up to a ten day subscription to Boxfell. Are you gonna <laughs> so that I could watch the first couple of episodes of Watchmen, HBO's Watchmen? Right. Because this company Boxfell, um, in Australia here, they own all the exclusive streaming rights to all the HBO shows. They won't do soon though, will they? When HBO. That, that'll go transnational, oh, that streaming I service. I don't know. I, uh, oh, no. I did actually hear that Boxfell are uh, probably going to be taking the rights of HBO Max. So, yeah. We're never... <laughs> I'm not a fan because I, I got... I got uh, and I'll, uh, I'm going to let you finish in a minute. But, like, when I when I got my phone plan, they offered me, the like, a free set of... Um, trials and yep. boxfell was <laughs> was one of the options and i thought oh that would be great but it i didn't realize that it worked on the package basis that all other iterations of boxfell yeah, operated yeah, under yeah exactly and that really fucked me over i was like that is that that is a waste it is it like, is that's, a huge oh. waste but um so i signed up for this subscription to watch uh, a couple of episodes of watchmen and Fortunately, I found out my sister already has a subscription, so today's the final day for me to cancel. Mm. So if I cancel today and then just go on her subscription, then it's all good. What else does Boxville have? Uh, so they've got all of like HBO's catalogue. They've got like all, pretty much all the shows I've been wanting to watch, mm. like Chernobyl, Barry, um, Watchmen, 
and they got uh, uh, the new What We Do in the Shadows TV series. That's right, yeah, it does. Um, but that's a, that's a, what do you call it? That's uh, an FX Yeah, FX, isn't it? FX, yeah. yeah. But uh, Watchmen, it is... Ha- have you read the comic or seen I did. The movie I was really or? big. Like, I was really big on comics when I was young, and I read the, the, the graphic novel when I would have been, like, 13, 14. Yeah. And felt that I was really cool in it. Like, like, honestly, that's probably the most literary thing that I read in that in that period. Yeah, yeah. Like, because it's not in like, it's really dense. Like, yeah, it's properly it's, dense, it's, and it takes a couple of readings to mm-hmm. to gather everything that's going on. And it's essentially it's a, it does it doesn't work if it doesn't work as your first comic. Like, if Watchmen's your first comic, you kind of don't understand it because. The whole point of it is it's a deconstruction of comic books. But it's also done in a way that feels like it's it's uh and when I when I use the term novel I mean in the sense of not as in, you know, it is like I mean the it's uh Watchmen is new, but when I say novel I mean in the style of a novel. Yep. It's almost like a comic book that has the structure and and uh complexities of a novel. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so this, this show actually, it's set in the world of Watchmen. So like with the movie, they try to do a direct adaptation and some say they quote unquote succeeded. Some say they failed quite divisive Zack Snyder film. That one is. Oh, can I just, can I just say really quick, we're getting for it. So for a time, this was available in the U S Yeah. but we're getting the ultimate cut of Watchmen, which includes all like, it's coming out on Blu-ray here, which includes, I think they chop in like the stuff from you know the comic like this the oh the towels from the black Friday. that one they yeah, chopped yeah. that in with all the with all like additional um all the deleted scenes that yeah. were like originally included in the director's cut so that's coming out soon oh, I'm interested cool. to see that but I think I think the movie doesn't serve yeah that, that story it's well yeah I've I've seen the movie the movie's fine but I understand the complaints about it completely missing the point of the um the graphic novel. Um, but this series is set like in the present day, so it's like twenty nineteen and Oh really? I didn't know that. And all a lot of the characters from the original uh not uh in the background they're kind of lurking, so it's like they've been slowly revealing some of the original characters. Um and a lot of them are just like old, you mm. know. Um, and well, they kind of do that with um, within the the original anyway, don't they? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. They, they jump between a timeline of, yeah. of of an earlier iteration of the Watchmen, and then the later mm. iteration, those first it, uh, iteration people are, mm. you know, retiree age. Yeah. So they've um, it's set in the world of Watchmen, and it's present day, and um, it's this weird, like, bizarre universe where, like. Vietnam is now a state of the U.S. because the U.S. won the Vietnam War. Yeah, um, and that it, that was the sort of the, the historic uh, alternate pretense of, yeah. of the the novel wasn't of it? the novel. Yeah, and then um, you've got things like uh, I find it hilarious because um, Robert Redford is a U.S. president in it oh, as right. well. <laughs> They've got like a post. It's like history of U.S. presidents. It's like Nixon. Abraham Lincoln, and it's like Robert Redford, and you're like, what? <laughs> um, and then just little things like um, uh, all the cops, like superheroes have kind of been outlawed, and in place of that, all the cops have decided to like wear masks, and they're they're pretty much vigilantes themselves, so they take the law into their own hands, but also they get away with like police brutality and stuff like that because... Because they don't have individual identification. Yeah, exactly. No one knows who anyone is anymore. Um, 
so you've got all these new characters, but then they, yeah, they do, they have been slowly introducing some older characters. I will say um, uh, they bring in Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. He's still around. Is he's he? still around. Is he ostracized at all? Or? Uh, he's played by Jeremy Irons, and he's fantastic <laughs> in it. Like, he's... he's. Do you, okay, do you mind if I go into a little bit? Or are you... How much... How, uh, how much... I mean, I remember the, the story of the original fairly well, and I am interested to see the show. I'm going to say no. I'll say no. But, like, is the, is the pretense of this show... Can I give you a brief... Yeah, go on, whatever. A brief, okay. Basically, he's a crazy old rich secluded man in a mansion, and he's just obsessed with many things. Well, okay, so, like, I mean, because the movie, the movie and the book doesn't really give much leeway as to what happens after its conclusion, so is, yeah. there, is there the inference of, of how he's, of what comes of the, the big catastrophe that he causes at the yeah, end Yeah, the uh, they... They haven't fully revealed what's happened in between the time, uh, in between the book and the present day. Um, they are making, they are alluding to a couple of things. There are some theories that I've been following. Um, I'm not going to go into it because, like, one of the theories involves a spoiler of, I think it's episode three or something like that. There's, there's an, uh, he, <laughs> pretty much, like, he's, he's like, a supporting character, but every scene he's in, I just get so excited mm. for. I'm like, oh, here we go, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and one thing I will also say is I quite like the fact that it's a very serious kind of world, but it um, takes the piss out of like the really goofy costumes in the comics. Mm. Like, you see some of the costumes that these characters have, and it's like, oh, it's literally just a bag over their head or something <laughs> like that. Or, like, you see a certain older character, like, don a costume for the first time in a while, and you're just like, man, that looks stupid on you. <laughs> <laughs> like, because, like, you know, you like, I I think when we see comic book characters in comics wearing costumes, we don't, we don't mm. take a second thought about it. We think, yeah, whatever. But then when you see it in live action mm. in the present day, you're just like, that, 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 yeah, do, that, that does not that's age the thing. Well. It's like when they introduce Spider-Man in, in you know, the Spider-Man origin stories, they, they spend a little time with people reacting to his costume. Whereas I think if, if, if like yeah. footage came out on the news of, of like a Spider-Man yeah. operating a Spider-Man among the points of discussion would be, look at what a fuck he looks like in his suit. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Just, just walk around. Like. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm interested to see that. I really am. And I like is is the the Watchmen as an organization is that there or is it like we're leading up to the formation of a new? I think we're le- yeah. I think we're leading up to a formation of something different. So at the minute, is it just kind of like a sort of alternate history expo- exploration? Yeah, it's like... kind of like an alternate history. A kind of like a where are they now kind of right. thing. Um and. It's this kind of, there's this big division between, uh, so you've got these, so you've got the police who are, you know, wearing masks and stuff like that, and you've got the quote-unquote rednecks who are all these, um, the like, they started like this kind of Rorschach cult. They're all wearing Rorschach masks and, you know, reading pages from his journal and stuff mm. like that. So it's kind of like building up to this big kind of like, almost like kind of f- the events of Watchmen have... You know, uh, lingering on and and uh, 
causing a heap of like class divisions and stuff like it's that. It's bizarre to think, and I can't comment on how it's treated, but it's bizarre to think how that character, Rorschach, if he's then rendered as some kind of cult figure. Because mm. he was quite a he was he's quite a, a complicated character. Yeah, it was. Like yeah. he's almost like he's almost in a way, he's kind of like the Joker, but his but his uh Ambitions are in favor of good, but his methods of getting there are quite are quite twisted and and sick yeah, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, I I think there's actually an episode that just dropped tonight. But I am very intrigued by this show, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping like there are some characters that they haven't revealed yet, but they've been teasing that I'm hoping will show up. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but yeah, it is it's a really good show. Should definitely watch yeah. it. Well, on, I, won't, I won't be buying Boxfell away on Boxfell. <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah, for sure. Well, what's something that is much more affordable and has our film of the week on there? Ah, <laughs> uh, Stan. 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 Australia's own. Australia's own Stan. Um, I've been loving Stan lately because you know, I, know I think I think so it's good. got a really good bank of of content. Um, I think it lacks a little bit in its in its ex- quote unquote exclusive content. Yeah, but I, I mean, think... like when Netflix first started out, their original they didn't have that much original content. Mm. But as over time, they started to you know get more rights to things and get more money. So I mean, I could see them maybe in five years' time, like picking up some bigger projects. Or something. Well, I was I was set on getting the 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 Disney service, and I am still contemplating it. But the, don't do it. <laughs> the big draw for me was the the Simpsons. Yeah. Because they were saying they had all thirty seasons of the Simpsons. Now, for a time, I'd sort of said to myself, "You're going to buy at least the first ten seasons of the Simpsons." Oh yeah. Like yeah. they have, and I was like, "Well, if if there's a streaming service that has everything, you know, it's whatever like." Twenty dollars per per mm. month, get that. But then I find out they're gonna they're gonna cull some episodes. Oh like yeah, the, the Michael Jackson. One. Yeah, I'm I was like, literally like, about to say the Michael Jackson ones. I'm not like, gonna be there. That's yeah. gonna okay. The other thing is that's gonna suck like massive dick if they start taking that off the future DVD releases. Ooh, like I'm gonna yeah. be so mad if they do that. <laughs> but yeah, I I was con. That was the the one of the early reasons that I wanted to get the the, the Disney service. Mm. But um, I might end up just sticking to, to investing in like buy the DVDs from like. Kmart or something. Yeah, like that. well, I mean, do you know what? It, it, ten seasons of it'll end up being like three hundred dollars, probably. Mm, probably. But it'd be worth it if, if we're gonna have like you know that's the good Simpsons. Yeah, 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 the good, Simpsons. the good Simpsons. I saw a, you know, we're, we're lurking, but this is a good, this is a good point. Um, I saw a like a video essay a little while ago that was on the decline of the Simpsons, yep. and it was someone trying to pinpoint like where it actually went. You can pinpoint off. the exact... Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally like that. And it, I think he deduced it was around season 12 or 13. Now, season 12 was actually pretty a pretty decent season. That's, that's, that's the one that has, I think it's called A Tale of Two Springfields, where it gets divided by an area code oh, on the telephone, okay. and it becomes yeah. like a Berlin Wall scenario. <laughs> and then the Who come and like, like play, and they blast it open. Um, so that's, 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 a, that's a pretty decent episode. But yeah. then he, he made the point that now, where The Simpsons is like 30 seasons... Uh, long, mm. there are more quote unquote bad Simpsons than there are good Simpsons. Good Simpsons. So it, uh, then the inference that I took from that is like you know we we tend to idolize this show in some ways as you like you know the pillar of uh, adult animation so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But the the heyday is sort of 
been and gone and compared mm. to what we've got now it was it was it was the minority yeah it was yeah, yeah. yeah. um Good i like show. the simpsons though yeah. such a great show yeah. yeah but stan has the film of the week the film of the week the film of the week what did we watch this week? We watched, uh, this film came out in 2001, right? 2001. Okay, uh, the 2001 film, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand. Dun, 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 Oh, wait, that, not that Wrong one. movie. <laughs> Wrong one, okay. Imagine He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, but, like, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Or... I'll, I'll one-up you on this one. Imagine 2001 A Space Odyssey, but remove the monolith with a falafel. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say directed by Richard Lowenstein, and it's like, it's like in the ship, they're all just playing guitar and smoking weed. Yeah. And it's, it's like, who's he? That's Jabba the Hutt. I control the remote control. I, c- I control the TV. Yeah. But okay. no, he died with the falafel in San uh Play the trailer. Play the trailer? Yeah, yeah, so press play on the video. Yeah. Oh, no, but... You control the remote. I'll try control the remote. Oh, okay, yep. Right, ready. I'm a writer. You can't write. I can write. Philosophical insights, direct experience with the mystery of being, dusky whores, Russian transvestites. Enter me, enter me, she goes. Enter me hard, enter me deep. It's for Penthouse magazine. Derived from the allegedly autobiographical book by John Birmingham, he died with the falafel in his hand, tells the episodic plight of its protagonist, Danny Kirkhope. Where it's alleged that Danny has lived in 49 sharehouse situations, the film offers a rendering of three of those, taking place firstly in Brisbane, then Melbourne, before ending in Sydney. Amidst bucket bongs, albino moon tanning sessions and the frequent arrival of thuggish deck collectors, Danny and his interchanging assortment of flatmates share a common experience in trying to come to terms with greater society. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. One thing I think it's it's good to note about about the selection of this film is previously we've you know in the previous six episodes we've selected something that at least one of us has of some... the two of us have has seen and yeah. is you know is either gifting this to the other person and saying here give this a watch or we've both seen it and it's like we're we're you know we're revisiting it. Yeah. Um, this is the... something that we both haven't seen. Haven't seen. I mean it's. I've been aware of it for a very long time. Weirdly, for the time that I've been aware of it, I, I didn't know that it was directed by the same guy, Richard Lowenstein, or Lowenstein, yeah, yeah. Um, who who also did Dogs in Space with uh, Michael Hutchinson, a starring role. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always sort of lingered as an Australian film that I should check out at See, some point. weirdly enough, for many years I've been aware of it, but I, I actually wasn't aware it was an Australian film. I saw the title and... I saw the poster of Noah Taylor in the bathtub, but I didn't know there was Noah Taylor at mm-hmm. the time. I actually thought it was like a foreign film because yeah. it was like falafel, you got Noah Taylor, and I was like, maybe this is supposed to be like some, like, I know, some like Jewish culture, like kind of film or something well, like that. <laughs> the other or, thing is, like, the title is He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, but it's actually a falafel kebab, but I feel like that would make the title too long. Yeah, yeah. He died with a falafel kebab in his hand. Yeah. Falafel in his hand just... Yeah, falafel in his hand. But then I imagine like a small rock-like falafel in his hand. And it's yeah, yeah. Like In the film, it's like a big, yeah. girthy kebab leaking garlic <laughs> sauce down, <laughs> uh, down Flip's arm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is the first time that both of us have seen it. Yeah. And 
I saw it a few hours ago. When did, when did you watch it? I watched it last night. Last night? Yep, last okay. night. So as such, but like we've, we've... Fresh in our minds. Fresh in our minds, but more than that, whenever we come fresh to record the podcast... And our bellies. <laughs> and our bellies. Ooh, falafel. Ooh, but every yeah. time we arrive to do this podcast, we try and have a fairly... Um, we don't talk to each other that much. Like, yeah, we just don't talk to each other. <laughs> I'm like, again. shut up, save it for the fucking podcast. We, we, we arrive at the recording studio. We don't say a word. With duct tape on our We mouth. sit down. We hit record. We talk. We stop recording. And then we get up and leave. <laughs> and we never speak to each other again. <laughs> we but just give each other a weird side. I'll, I'll, like, I'll clarify. We... we Dance intrinsically around the subject of the film. Yeah. So I don't know what you thought of the movie. Okay. And I'm hoping that you don't know what I thought of the movie. Okay. So I'll ask you blanketly before we get into into you know specifics. Did you enjoy this film? I very much so enjoyed it. You enjoyed it? Yeah, okay. I enjoyed it. Um, I will say I watched it quite late at night, and I think towards the third act it started to lose me a little bit i think it's a little longer than it it feels like it gets a little be. bit longer than yeah than what it mm. should be but like very much so from the start of it it really captured my attention with that one it did for me too i think it's got a it's got a kind of 90s indie edge despite the fact that it was it was released in 2001 i mean it was based on a book that was released in the 90s and dealt with yeah. 90s subjects um it does have the kind of vibe around it that you'd off that you'd associate with something like clerks and Reservoir Dogs. Now, Reservoir Dogs link like dealt with very specifically in the yeah, movie. Yeah. With the the yeah. among the opening scenes is it like it's it's almost like a meta reference because there it's three people discussing the homosexual implications of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And the fact that is that uh, Mr. Orange says I love you, man, to Mr. White. Yeah. And they're trying to convince the guy that it means that the the guy who really likes the film that it means that they're homosexuals, and he's there saying it's my favorite fucking movie, and you fucking ruined it for me. <laughs> But the that discussion in itself, not not just based around the fact that it takes place around a dinner table, um, but also the fact that it takes place at the very beginning of, of the film, is almost like a mirroring of the the Madonna discussion at the beginning of, of yeah, of yeah, Dogs. exactly. Um, so whether I mean I haven't read the book, and there's a bit of me that feels a little ashamed that I haven't, and mm. I'm coming to this discussion without the full context of of the narrative. Yeah. Well, I have heard. I did a little bit of research and I have heard that I think there are a lot of differences between the book and the movie. Right. Mainly the book is more just random fragments of like small stories mm. combi- combined into one. While this one has like a couple, of, it tries to, I mean, it is still like snippets of a story, but like it tries to have some sort of a narrative. Yeah. And I feel like it, that's yeah. probably catering to the filmic um, yeah. convention. Yeah. You know, that, you know, there's a little bit of, of a commonplace notion with film that you need the, the narrative to drive it. And even though, like, with the final product that you get, it's not... It's almost subtextual. Yeah. That, like, the narrative is almost subtextual, but there are de- there are developments on the surface that, that do intrigue, but it's I think it's hard to see where it's eventually ending up. 
Yeah. But I mean, having said that, actually, I feel like I don't, I don't know whether this is the case in the, in the book, but I feel like that's one of the reasons why they introduced the fact the uh, the death of one of the characters early on, like the titular death with falafel in Full hand, in hand. Yeah. is <laughs> like the the first scene. Yeah. And it opens with the playing of Golden Brown by the Stranglers, which is mm. if you, if you know anything about that song, has had loads of like uh, readings into it that have suggested you know like. It's heroin. Golden Brown is heroin. Yeah. So the the idea that this person's died and Golden Brown's playing the first time I saw that was like he's died from a heroin overdose. Heroin overdose. And, but yeah. they don't they don't te- like tell you mm. they don't contextualize that instance in the very first the first time you see it. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of oh there's going to be a death involving a falafel coming up. Who's it going to befall? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Having said that, I think if you saw the back of the guy's head in the opening sequence, he's the only blonde one. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. One like, of, I was like, like who's the blonde, bleach blonde one out yeah. of all these people? Um, but no, I, I think that, yeah, it has a... And I was saying to Jesse before we started recording that, like, uh, Dogs in Space is on, on my list of things to, to yeah. talk about for this Obviously, for this yeah. podcast. It's, it's not a movie that I'm, like a devoted fan of but I think it's a very good just it's it's a good piece like yeah. it's a good piece like you know it's it's not something that I'm fanatical about I really like it for the Michael Hutchins component and I like it for the soundtrack but alongside he died with the falafel in sense the two are the two are very very similar mm. I mean like dogs in space sort of tells a similar flat share scenario but concentrated to to one flat and involving this this band, yeah, and it's a lot more grungier and a lot more dirtier. Which you know, if you've seen he died with the falafel in his hand, it's like it's it's almost hard to imagine how much grottier it can get than that first yeah. house that he lives yeah. in. But it's it's a lot more grimy yeah, with yeah, you know yeah. uh, cans left all over the all over the shop and and things like that. So I think there's it's it's almost like a uh, an aesthetic trend in this in this guy's work. Oh yeah, um, I think. Watching this movie, one of the first things I actually kind of thought of was um, remind me a little bit of Train Spotting. Yeah, way. I got... Dog, Dogs in Space is yeah. feel is like I'd say that feels like an I often describe it to people as an Australian Train Spotting. Yeah, yeah, it just like yeah, it definitely feels very Train Spotting in like this kind of uh, you've got a heap of characters that are all you know fed up with society mm-hmm. and like. Um, and yeah, they're living in these like grungy mm. apartments and house sharing and like, it's just like, it's not as, um, I wouldn't say it's as graphic and explicit as no. tra- And it's not as, it's but... not as stylized either, but yeah. the aesthetic's definitely there. And that's what I mean. Cause I mean, you know, I think you, train spotting would qualify what you'd term nineties in yeah, aesthetic yeah. when it comes to, when it comes to films and I can see where where a lot of the references are coming from, like without having been around in the period that they're talking about. Yeah. Because there are elements of youth culture that just transcend the decades that mm. they're often attributed to because the the film focuses around Danny centrally, yeah. who is uh, a writer and is sort of fixated with the countercultural beatniks like um I don't think he he yeah he mentions Hunter S Thompson by name he mentions Kerouac and he's he's also got enough for Nick Cave as well. He does mention Nick Cave. Nick Cave appears on the soundtrack 3 times. 3 times. He there's a there's a mercy seat there's yep. a playing of the mercy seat during a, a suicide attempt. Following that, there's this, there's a version of the same song done live but in a somber mode <laughs> and then later in a sort of uh 
uh, what would you call it? You know, when you burn things in, out of commemoration for someone, there's a name Commemor- for that. Commemorative burning. Commemorative arson. Um, <laughs> commemorative arson. Um, it's in, lit. <laughs> it's lit. <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> but um, into my arms plays. But I think with that character, you know, you get the the sort of generic artistic sensibility, and you get that across his his uh, friends. Um, and in a lot of the ha- the house shares scenarios that that he goes through, they're notable for all being predominantly left leaning, and I don't yeah. mean this in the sense that that um the left leaning is is a point of derision or something that's you know so explicit as to become uh, a basis for the narrative. But all of the characters at different points, or most of the characters, make reference to to a a rejection of fascistic ideals. Yeah, and they... Or, oh, what's his name? One of them's got, like, a Che Guevara poster up on the yeah. wall. And they kind of have this kind of postmodern kind yeah, of Yeah, there's fixations on postmodernism and discussions life. around postmodernism and yeah. things like... Like, the, there's the discussion of Lenin. He says, turns out he wasn't he wasn't actually called Lenin. Yeah. It was a made-up name, like <laughs> Prince or Bono. Yeah. Like, if he'd stuck around longer, he could have called himself the political figure formerly known as Lenin. Lenin, yeah. Um... And then he, he, you know, he follows it up with it. It was quite postmodern in a way. Yeah. Um. So there's these discussions around left-leaning ideology that sort of ideologies, I should say, that that kind of permeate throughout the movie and functional. I think, in the sense of this d- discussions, they function as text, but in a greater scope of the film, that's very much the context where these are these characters. They're yeah. linked to hu- the humanities and different capacities, and this is what they think. Mm. When it comes to insulting someone, they're going to call them a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to uh, to their lifestyle, they're going to be quite free living and centered around love and emotion. So, and, and... We, really, when you think about this movie, it's just about, about a bunch of uni students. <laughs> so yeah, there's a moment I was thinking about this. There's a moment when he first goes to the Sydney house, and Sophie Lee's character is her name Nina or something like that. Her name yeah, is Nina. Nina. She's she says she's reading the uh, she's reading the, the agreements, yeah. and she's saying everyone is banned from writing each other into their novels, plays, film scripts, websites, and all future and I'm like, technologies. I I it's, feel I feel like that would be something one of my friends. But would you, say. but you can imagine as well if that's part of the agreement for entering this house, she's kind of just expecting that whoever's going to come is going to be a, an art student. Yeah, and there's you know there's I mean if that was made in this day and age, I'm pretty sure podcasting would be in, in that yeah. in that component. So, I mean, I feel personally attacked I by this film. I am hashtag attacked. Um, I'm triggered. But then there's also a moment where he goes, is it to like, uh, he goes to a, he visit, is it, it's a bank manager and the guy says, no, it's, who, who is it? It's some, it's, it's someone who works for like a, a desk job. Yeah. And the guy says, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, right." The, and he's I like, worked at Burger King. For, yeah, and I have an arts degree. Yeah, and I have, a, and I have an arts degree. <laughs> um, so I think it's it's very much dealing with with the assumed futility of artistic endeavor. Yeah, amidst uh, essentially um, the need to to make money and provide us a, a sensible it's, living. Yeah, exactly. Because you have the whole element of. Um, uh, the debt collectors coming yeah. to uh, collect the rent, kind of yeah. thing, and they and they're and like they're, they're they're literally scraping the scraping their wallets for what they can exactly. They're pull just belittling, belittling these people, and you, you've got Noah Taylor who uh, he keeps saying, you know, he's expecting 
like 25k from penthouse yeah. for an article that he hasn't even written yeah. kind of thing and, but i think it's it's an interesting take on on that scenario for a number of reasons i think that like perceivably and again i haven't read the book but the inference of the book was that it was autobiographical and in that sense that that stuff happened to to john birmingham the author mm. um but I think there's there's components of it that is at once like a celebration of that of that scenario, but then also a little bit critical yeah. of it, particularly with um come the the death of Flip by the end of it, and it does come across as almost like a little bit nihilistic and a little bit a little bit um futile in a way, like the experience. Yeah. It almost feels like they don't know where they're going, but they're just going. Yeah, and I feel like there are a number. That's what of... I feel like a lot of this movie kind of is is like it's kind of like a slice of life where it's like things do happen but there's not there's not really a for me at least I didn't really find a real beginning middle and end kind of thing there's not th- really, uh, it's kind of just like life goes on I think to be so in in the case of the book I was reading up on this I think the book has more than three instances like house instances yeah and I think you could perceivably deduce that house one house t- two house three almost comprises a three act structure because and I think the the final house as in the when he moves to Sydney almost feels like a maturation of that whole process so where the 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 initial house is quite ramshackle and grungy and dirty and chaos chaotic yeah. yeah the second the second house is a little bit put more uh, put together but then the third house in Sydney is quite pristine clean and and a lot yeah. more cosmopolitan um and a lot more well functioning possibly presumably um under the influence of the Sophie Lee character who's imposing these rules. Mm. Um, and I think there's also strangely a comment around where the characters start to start to, to diss fascism, particularly with the Anya character where she's talking about rebelling against the patriarchal tyranny, so to speak. <laughs> the way that she's trying to get Sam to conform to things that are said to be imposed by that tyranny, i.e. like expressions of emotion, oh, yeah. in themselves become quite fascistic and, con- and controlling. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a weird, there's a weird uh, criticism of hypocrisy that arises from those kinds, of, those kinds of moves that even manifests later on when you get to the Sophie Lee scenario where, she's tr- where they're trying to place the the uh, the pineapple chunks oh, and yeah. one doesn't like where the other one's putting it and they eventually go, oh, you're fascist. And it's like, I'm not a fascist, you're a fascist. They go near the biscuit. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, it's it's almost like in, in staking their case for how things should be, they're imposing additional rules that come to be, that come to be quite controlling yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, but no, I think in the case of, of, of there being a structure, you're right, it does have a kind of dazed and confused-esque hangout feel to it. Yeah. But I think you can chart that character's development as per the the renderings of those households. Yeah, fair enough. I think. That one. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the debt collectors as well and and they I think how many I think you get a debt collector for each house or a set of debt collectors for each house. Yeah. And in the initial the initial set of debt collectors, I think, have got a again in a reference to a sort of pulp fictiony. Yeah, no, they, yeah, they remind it's me fucking of Jules um, and Vincent. Yeah, like, Jules and Vincent. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th- I, to be honest, I think it's probably closer to the to the Harvey Keitel character that's in pulp fiction because of the because of the the flower, the yeah. what's it, uh, Winston Wolf. 
But um, yeah, the role of those characters almost feels very much like you know they're they're working for Marcellus mm. Wallace and they're going to accost Brad yeah. for for fucking Marcellus Wallace over and they're they're a lot in the case of he died with a falafel in his hand they're heavy they're heavy handed and they're threatening violence against everybody in in the house but the inference is that these guys haven't paid rent or they're oh they have uh, exceeded their credit allowance, I think, in the late, in the later case. Yeah, and then they're asked to pay, I think, th- uh, back pay three weeks by the end of the week yeah. or something. Like and then that. in the case of the second one, it's it's his mate who's gone on a bender yeah. and fucked over the casino who uh, the debt collectors are associated with, but then when they come to a cost him, they get linked to to uh, Danny, who, who himself, himself has some um, financial problems yeah. that need... Yeah. They need to chase up. I think one of my favorite scenes is going to be the scene where the debt collectors come in, in towards that first act, and they arrive at the house, and they're walking through the house, and they get out to the back of the house. And there's some weird, like, pagan yeah. satanic. They're cult. burning. They're burning <laughs> the hills hoist. Yeah, they're burning the hills hoist, and like half of like the house just like falls in on it. So. And then the, the neo-Nazis start riding the, the motorcycle through it. and <laughs> just like, okay. There's an Apocalypse Now component to that, isn't there, where yeah. the, the guys uh, painted his face like um, Martin Sheen, and then with the arrival of the neo-Nazis, there's that helicopter. No, but I feel like similar to similar to something like Clerks, which is very much a postmodern thing, it's got a number of links to external... Uh, media like the Tarantino component, like oh, the, yeah, like the sure. Apocalypse Now component, and then also with music, you know, there's direct uh, references to the things that the that these characters are listening to. Like, you know, Nick Cave. It's not just that they play Nick Cave; it's that Nick Cave is recognised uh, as something that would feature in this characters in these characters' lives. Yeah, like I, I think you like that. As like f- they like they make mention of Nick Cave. Like yeah. he's not just the soundtrack. It's like no. They, they've got it turned on, and that's yeah. because the character has chosen to listen specifically to Nick Cave. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like there are a number of, despite there being a, an absence of a plot, I think there are a number of quote unquote like set piece scenes. Yeah. That are usually offset by a you know a title card, so you get like the, the winter solstice blue moons, <laughs> or the. Uh, the albino moon tanning session or the oh, bucket the bong. Or, yeah, God bless uh, Flip or whatever his name was. Um, I was like, is this actually a thing? <laughs> but they, they impose, like it almost feels like you're getting signposted iconography of this character's experience. Yeah. Where if you were to, it almost feels like it's functioning as a collage of, of like a time, a set of places and a lifestyle. But I mean... I can definitely relate to because I mean, like, um, we, you and I, we've done, we've done it. We've been to uni. We've been to uni. We've done. We we've know done about post postmodernism. That sort of thing. We're as wanky as these characters can be, <laughs> um, but it feels very much of a rendering of this in the context of the '90s. But having said that, I think there are definitely things that you can point to and go, "I, I know exactly what your yeah, what like that is. it's it, it it's very '90s, but it's got quite a timeless feel to it. Yeah. Um, Particularly in just that kind of that rebel kind of alternative yeah. culture, um, and yeah, definitely in regards to like it's very like it's, 
It's very up the man yeah. kind of thing. It feels very, and with, with reference to an Australian connection, it feels similar to, and it's been, I think there's a documentary airing of it soon on ABC at the, in reference to the time of recording. I don't know if you, if you listen to this at a later point, it might not be on the ABC. Yeah. But that uh, variety show, Recovery, which was which sort of, when you see clips of it either on YouTube or on when they rerun segments of it on Rage, yeah. does sort of seem to capture a an Australian iteration of the teen use mm. that was sort of epitomised in the stuff that you see when you look at what's captured of grunge and Nirvana and and a lot of media that is typically when you see it in, in mainstream renderings from an American perspective. But then this offers an Australian rendering where it's it's relatively similar but with the with the added components that that are based around the Australian locale and the Australian setting and the, the culture that existed here already. Um, and I think that this movie is a testament to that in mm. in some capacity. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nick Cave is, is an, an Australian alternative music figure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they reference Tip Triple J, but I don't think it would be so far <laughs> as to say that it's on in the background in a lot of instances. Um <laughs> But no, I think it paints a very... They dis- don't listen to Carl Sandler. No, they don't. I think... <laughs> no, he's a fascist. But I feel like it's, I feel like it's a very... It feels very much like a, a zeitgeisty rendering of, of a period of time that you and I weren't around in, but yeah. we, can, we, we, know what, we know what they're getting at. Yeah. Because that sort of thing still goes on now. Yeah, it does, yeah. One thing I think that sort of prevails in, in, in a commentary of these kind of scenarios is you essentially get where there's like, say, at least three people living under the same roof with their own trials, tribulations and and uh, obsessions, problems and things that are just niggling them. You it get, gets kind of the, to the point where, you know, each people just become so complacent with the fact that everybody's got something to be pissed off about that when it comes to them airing their frustrations, that it just it's just like, yeah, of course you're saying that, but I'm going to worry more about myself. You, you know, you get that, that scenario towards the end where Dirk's declaring that he's gay and nobody seems to notice and he's citing his oppression and then uh, Sophie Lee's character's saying, like, well, nobody cares about my problems. I'm an actress. I should end up on TV. I'm, yeah. I'm more attractive than all those fat bitches they get on there. And then nobody's giving credence to what the other person is saying. And meanwhile, there's the guy behind behind them all who's just saying, they're all really fit, aren't they, in reference <laughs> to a group of people that are on the TV. And it just goes to show that all of these people have their own predilections, but where nobody seems to listen to them and they're fixated on their own problems, that becomes a point of frustration and just adds fuel to the fire. Yeah. Um, and it feels almost like that moment where Noah Taylor but, uh, busts out at Dirk is almost saying, like, yeah, dude, everybody's fucked up. We're trying to cope with it as well as you are, but we've got our own shit going on. Exactly. And that just seems yeah. to be, like, a, an encompassing rendering of those kinds of scenarios that manifest in all sequences of the house, ha- in, in all of the... Uh, the house share scenarios, but comes to a boil in that final, uh, in that final scenario, mm. in that final uh, house, I should say. In, in that Sydney. final house, yeah. Yeah. And then you got Jabba the Hutt. You got Jabba the Hutt, who's in the the initial Melbourne house, who can, who's a, 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 a built man. He is a big boy. He's a big boy, <laughs> and he controls the television remote. Oh right? yeah, if, cr- yeah. If you use the remote, mate, you are in some trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! What I thought was was 
interesting and and uh, a review that I read of this of this movie noted it as well was that the the rendering of each flat um added to by the context that they are each in a different Australian city does have its very like a very geographic specific rendering yeah like, like, I, feel like I feel uh cuz the first house is in Brisbane Brisbane yeah and they're oh yeah they're whacking cane toads <laughs> whacking cane toads with, and a, like, with golf with golf it yeah it very much feels like yeah you can feel the tropical yeah it feels like what I imagine schoolie, because uh, people go to schoolies on like uh, Gold Coast, it feels like schoolies weekend on the Gold Coast essentially, yeah. where it's like a bunch of people just in this house just getting up to all this weird stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you get to to Melbourne and it's constantly raining, and <laughs> and then later to Sydney where everything feels uptight and proper and in kind of an evocation of a metropolis style business functioning. Yeah. You know, I think you it feels very much like you're moving from place to place in a mm. rendering of, of location, which, I mean, I, with the exception of something like Muriel's Wedding, I don't know that I've seen many Australian films that make the point of jumping between cities. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, Australian yeah. cities tend to just be in the background kind of thing. Yeah. Um, no one really, not to my knowledge at least, makes a point of being like, hey, this is Melbourne, hey, this is Sydney, other than when, you're, when you've got, like, an American film that is set in Sydney and it shows mm. the Sydney Opera House and that's about it. Having said that, the, uh, in, well, in, a, in addition to that, the house that they own in Sydney has got quite a, a nice view of the harbour. Yeah. And I'm there it. thinking, like, how much are you paying? Like, then again, there's five of them, but that would be an expensive house to, yeah. to rent. <laughs> like, it's quite lush and... and Pristine, but I think it would be a really expensive house if, say, you or I, I mean, would have housing pop prices a bond on in it. Sydney are just expensive to yeah. begin with, so I mean, I don't yeah. know how how they afford to live there. No, yeah. but, but I mean the the I guess you could say that in the in the context of or in the absence of a plot, the thing that kind of drives it is, like I said, the the development of this character, but more than that, the the debt that seems to be chasing him as he jumps between city to city. Now, the inference from the beginning is that he's going to write a, a penthouse article and he's going to receive 25 grand for it. And so he... he just, just for clarification, penthouse... As it's in, like a kind of playboy. Okay, so yeah. like kind of a softcore porno man. I think you'd, you'd, you'd see some nipple. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't looked. A little bit of nip. A little bit of nip. A little bit of nip. Um, in the words of Alan Partridge, oh, bit of bush. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Um, he comes to write this, uh, you know, this, <laughs> have you seen that episode of that show? When he's... No, but just that audio snippet is just ingrained in my mind. He's like, he's like reenacting the opening sequence to the spy who loved me. And it's like silhouetted girls. He's like, oh, bit of nipple. Oh, bit of bush. Um, but the other, yeah, like I say, the other thing that's chasing Danny is is the debt that he's in, which seems to which seems to follow him the follow him in the form of the debt collectors. Now he's written this, he writes this story for Penthouse that he doesn't realise has has uh, even been received or acknowledged. Yeah, and the story compli- comprises the tale of a man who masturbates so much that he comes to fall in love with his hand. Yeah, but ultimately is shocked to to realise that the hand comes to cheat on him when he wakes up one morning and notice the hand isn't there but is next door with, with the neighbour. Yeah. 
That is a very, like, graphic story. That is, because it, <laughs> like, it's the implication I, that he's cut the hand off and, and given it to the dude. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's like there's a South Park episode where Cartman's hand, where Cartman pretends that his hand is Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. And it ends up falling in love with Ben Affleck, and Ben Affleck falls in love with him. <laughs> and there's this really gr- love, Weird gratuitous love. scene where the hand goes down on Ben Affleck. So the implication is that just Cartman's wanking on Ben Affleck. <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, that's basically the scenario you yeah, get in this, yeah. in this story. But um, come the end of the movie where there's also the the uh, the implication that they're, that the attached to the house that they're living in in Sydney is a false identity to which someone has that someone has created so, so that they, they can exploit the credit rating of this false person. Yeah. Um, and where debt collectors arrive at the house and say that they're, that they're looking for the Mr. Yeah, Cochran. Yeah, Mr. Cochran. Yeah. Um, they cite that, that he's, you know, he might never have existed. Someone's created him and the person who's really using these credit cards is, is operating and exploiting, the, exploiting them for, for all of their worth. Yeah. Amidst this, uh, Danny claims to be Dostoyevsky, to uh, presumably to sideline the fact that uh, that he also has troubles with debt, um, but then the conclusion of the film where they're where they're each dropping ornaments into the to the fire pit um, in succession of of flips ashes. Uh, Sophie Lee's character drops in a, a set of credit cards, which <laughs> Danny realizes belong to the Mister Cochrane. Yeah. Um, and coupled with the revelation that. Uh, Sophie Lee's set to depart with Anya realizes that Sophie Lee's character is the one who all all along was was Mr. Cochran. Yeah. And so sets the police on them in a triumphant display of justice. Justice. But amidst all of these are is is a lot of um flagrant dialogue in again in a kind of it almost feels like like where this where this film was a was based on a book and I believe has had a stage iteration. It's been a stage play. Actually, yeah, I could definitely. Well, like if it isn't a stage play, I could it definitely, definitely could see, be, couldn't it? Yeah, I could definitely see. That. I feel like the the dialogue has got a kind of um, duologue feel about it, where where it is all you know uh, speech driven, mm. and in that sense, a lot of the speech is quite articulate and almost verbose from time to time. Like, it feels like they go out of their way it's, to, to, it's, to... Yeah, the speech is... Could you say the speech is quite woke? <laughs> I wouldn't say it's woke. I mean, the characters, if they were around now, would be the of the variety that would be quote-unquote woke. Woke, yeah. Um, but I feel like the the style of, of dialogue is sort of similar to... Like, clerks, you know, the yeah, two guys... Yeah. Chilling out, talking the shit, which which in itself, like if we're gonna if we're gonna make a really wanky reference, almost harks back to things like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or Dead or Waiting for Godot, which you know just two people essentially talking about nothing, yeah. but things that they think, what's going uh, on around them, yeah. Um, and that comes to be what renders mm. the the situation. Um, and in, something that did that really well, but it almost in an in an exemplum of uh, poetry and, and vulgarity is the the Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson sitcom Bottom. Did you ever watch that? Bottom. 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 
You haven't seen no, that? No, bottom. Uh, bottom. Okay, so it's it's a sitcom about just literally two guys. It's two a flat, it's two a, bums. Th- not bums, but but weirdly enough, they. Did they touch had, each other's bum? No, no. <laughs> no. But weirdly enough, they were inspired by Waiting for Godot, which is okay. which fixates on two bums, and the play is essentially a duologue between these two bums with in uh, characters that that appear. Uh, amongst them and interact with them. But uh, this Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson sitcom was essentially two guys living in a flat who are at the bottom of, of you know, the social uh, hierarchy. Okay, yep. Each episode usually had quite a base-level plot, and the plot would usually be centred around an attempt to get rich quick, uh, reap some success with the opposite sex. Like the Rick Mail character, his calling was that he he was like 30-something and still a virgin. <laughs> like, was just so, just, just such an unpleasant character, but he, he was just like, why won't anybody have sex with me? And so all of the, the plots would be things like, like the very first episode is they find an ad in a newspaper that's offering this pheromone spray, oh, which is like, you know, what you, you, you hear about in in sex shops where it's like spray this on you and the girls will go crazy so they go they yeah. go and get it and they're just like caking it on them and obviously it doesn't work yeah. but you know just just narratives like that and the dialogue in that is sort of centered around these spiels around discussions of what's happened mm. how crap their lives are uh attempts to 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 make it with with girls and just you know bum lifestyles that all that's Rendered in, he died with the falafel in his hands, but in a less slapstick and comic way, like where bo- where bottom could perceivably be seen as as a a dingy flat chair scenario. Yeah. It's rendered as like a slapstick, exaggerated comedy. What maybe I zoned out during this bit, but like, what did we end up finding out? What um, Noah Taylor's secret move was? No, he oh he says by the end of it that he kind of exaggerated it. He kind of exaggerated. But he kind of exaggerated. What was it though? I, wait, do you need advice, Jesse? <laughs> I, I need to know. I need to do it. No, yeah. I just like I I just thought of it just then. I was like, did they end up mentioning that, or did I just not pay attention to? No, that I, they. I mean, it's that could perceivably that could be another movie in itself when he where he's trying to explain what his what his move for seducing women is and the revelation is no he doesn't have it and no he's not that good with women yeah. but i think the pretense of him saying the pretense that's offered with him saying i am really good with women suddenly suddenly it it makes men quite fearful of him because it's like he's a viable opponent yeah and then women quite uh anticipatory of him because they're like well what's he going to do is he going to swoon me or yeah and and obviously it's it's that doesn't exist so he just he just rests as this this uh generic dude Mm. um i mean maybe maybe well yeah because he says he's exaggerating maybe it does not exist at all yeah exactly maybe it's just completely bullshitting and the other thing is, doesn't he sort of come to look like Nick Cave by the end of the movie? With oh, the yeah, suits he does, yeah. And the hair semi, I wouldn't say that Nick Cave has, has a quiff, but sort of toughed it up. Yeah. Um, but no, essentially a, a rendering of bohemian life. Yes. 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 That's yes. just me getting excited over bohemian life. Um, And the, if you notice, come the end of the movie, there's, there's a, a dedication that's written yeah. as for Michael. 1960 to 1997. Who? Which Michael? That's Michael Hutchins. Oh, nice. So Michael Hutchins, lead singer of In Excess, who appeared in 
Lowenstein's Dogs from Space, who yep. passed away in, I think it was November 22nd of 1997. So not long after I was born. Uh, well, when were you? Were you ninety seven? I was ninety seven. I was September. What? You, what? What day? Uh, ninth. I was. You were eight days before me. Yeah, I was. Oh, about a couple of weeks after. I think it was about a week after Diana's funeral. Right. Yeah. A lot of bad shit tends to happen in September. Oh, yeah. Diana, 9-11. Yeah. Like, Hendrix my, died, I'm pretty sure, in, in September. There is literally a photo. Um, I was going through my photo albums a while ago, and um, I found this photo of myself just really happy. It was my fourth birthday, and I'm riding on this, like, bike, and I've got this this art apron thing, and I've tied it around like a cape, and I've got a got a bicycle helmet on and everything. I look, you know, so happy. And then I check the date on it and it's like September 9th, 2001. And I'm just like, oh, he I was a, so innocent. I had a then. birthday on 9-11. Like yeah. I had a birthday party. Like it wasn't my actual birthday, but I had a party. Um, and I, and that was like what all the mums were talking about. Oh, no. Like that that had happened. Um yeah, side note. Side note. <laughs> side note. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm very much inclined to read the book, and I'm also inclined yeah. to read the book, mm-hmm. uh, the other books that this author has mm-hmm. authored. Yeah. Um, I'm also keen to see if I can find an offering of the, of the, the script. Mm. But more than that, there's said to be a sequel called uh, the... the oh, I'll find the name. He died it. with two falafels in his he hands. He died with... Uh, well, the, you know, the, the, the contemporary rendering would be he died while eating an HSP yeah. or something <laughs> like that. Um he died balls deep in HSP. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm fucking fanging for a feed, bro. Um, Cheeky bevies with the lads. <laughs> um, no, the sequel is called The Tasmanian Babes Fiasco. Oh. Um, and that also has got a play... Deri- ha- ha- it's also had a play derived from it. But at the same time, I think... I mean, the the sort of culty bookshops that you get in Perth... I don't know that I've seen he died with the falafel in his hands on their shelves... Yeah, no, it is a little bit too niche. Too niche, do you reckon? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very much keen to to seek this this book out. I mean, I'm a little bit uh, ashamed that I haven't got more that of a grasp on it. That you've done the movie before the book, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but more than that, I'm I'm a little bit ashamed that I don't have the no, more knowledge of the book for the purposes of this of this mm. podcast. Because I, you know, if there's anybody who comes to this as a devotee of he died with a falafel in his hand. They're going to be somewhat disappointed that I'm not citing all the 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 points that are On in the page three hundred seventy-five. <laughs> but um, no, John Birmingham seems like an interesting person to for interesting me to, to get into. Um, I don't know that he's had any other works that have been adapted into films, and if he has, I'd also be interested in checking them out. But when I was looking into, he died with a falafel in his hand. I came across a couple of um books that seemed to be quite interesting, and weirdly, when when you were talking about Watchmen, I thought were were almost similar similar narratives to the scenario yeah. before in, in Watchmen. So there's a, a series that he's got called Axis of Time, which deals with an altering of World War Two in the sense that time travellers go back and, and uh, stop World War Two from happening and then dealing with a consequent alternate like, history. Like an alternate future. Yeah, which yeah. I actually think is a series of a couple of books. But then there's also a, a series based... I think there's two books in this series, but the... Um, the initial book is called Without Warning that sees the United States disappear on the eve of the Iraq invasion oh. and dealing with an alternate history in that context. Yeah. So I think there's that uh, 
yeah, he's definitely someone that I'm keen to look into. But where those those two comprise quite, those two series are quite big ideas. Yeah, they're novels. quite grand, like yeah, society. Yeah, kind you, of you things. wouldn't expect it necessarily from he died with the falafel in his hands. But having said that, where I think he died with the falafel in his hands is almost similar to, and I've already made this comparison in this podcast, like something like Clerks. Yeah, you probably wouldn't see dogma coming from the guy that did no. Clerks. You know, no, I mean? well, it's like. I mean, with He Died With a Falafel in His Hands, definitely, like, it's a story that moves around, but it's quite contained. It's like mm. one house, another house, another house kind of thing. But with those kind of stories, they sound like, you know, they're a little bit more larger. Yeah, they might be dealing with, like, because, you know, uh, He Died With a Falafel in His Hands is quite, you know, uh, the the people talk, the way the dialogue between the characters is quite philosophical. Yeah, um, as it is in Clerks as well. But, yeah. yeah, but, like, it's quite grounded and contained in its settings. But then, like, you might be quite philosophical with those other stories, but they're quite larger in mm. scale just physically. Yeah, they, they deal with so. the, the actual implications of those uh, theories and those uh, yeah. and exercises in, in ideology. Well, there's, like, like falafel is literally just about guys sitting around talking about but the the thing about those kinds of movies and I think I think Clerks is a good example I think Dazed and Confused is a good example but I think the difference with Dazed and Confused and something like American Graffiti is they do jump about between locations yeah. and characters but with uh you know with uh he died with a falafel in his hand and and even Bottom and and Waiting for Godot and Clerks is that where the, where a lot of the the dialogue is flagrant and they're painting a picture with that dialogue, the movie comes to feel a lot bigger than than the closed off than what it actually is of the narrative. Yeah. yeah. So you know, there's there's essentially three settings, and he died with the falafel in his hand. I feel like I've been on a much bigger journey than jumping between three houses. Yeah. Just because when it comes to someone delivering uh, a du- a duologue with someone else, um, I'm getting a, I'm getting a rendering of like a very specific idea that's dealt with really, really intrinsically. Yeah. And that in itself feels like an episode, you know what I mean? And then yeah. it jumps to another one and it jumps to another one. Like, it, it, it's almost, it's almost chapter-like, you yeah. know? Like, and, uh, like, they really... I think with the dialogue, they really build the world with it. Like, there are some, you know, stories out there where dialogue's quite minimal and so, as a result, everything feels quite contained. Mm-hmm. But because they are talking about these big, heavy things, they're... Whether whether intentionally or accidentally, yeah, they're just they're just filling out this this world of um, you know talking about what this generation are feeling mm. about and what, the political, and what they're watching, what they're listening, yeah, what to, they're or... watching, what they're listening to, what they're feeling, their their frustrations, their yeah, it's it's more or less a snapshot of this particular generation and. Yeah, how they're feeling. Yeah, and the and the slacker component to that in a big, in a big bad way that I th- yeah. that I think seems to permeate through, a n- like a number of '90s works. Yeah. Um, and like we said, this this is this was released in 2001, but based on a book that was, uh, released in the '90s. Um, I'm interested to see to the extent to which this is actually autobiographical of John Birmingham. Oh yeah. Um, whether he did encounter someone who died with the falafel in his hand. I mean. I wouldn't mind a kebab right now. Just talking I'm about actually feeling like I'd a love kebab. a kebab. Um, that would be so great. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'll get one in the city. Possibly. Do that. Um, side note. <laughs> um, 
He Time? podcasted with a falafel in his hand. <laughs> we're, uh, that's what we're going to call the description of this. Of this, We're podcasting with a falafel in our hands. Yes, let's do it. Um, I'm interested to get this movie on DVD, actually, and I'm, and I'm interested to look through this guy's work. So I, this, I'm quite taken by it, to be honest. I think there's a bit of me that's like, maybe I won't enjoy it. Cause I, I mean, I'm not, yeah. a big, I'm not a big fan of the likes of... Like, I appreciate him totally, but I, I like I'm not a big fan of... The Hunter S. Thompson, uh, that kind of writer that, and that kind of work, and this feels to be in some way in line with it. Yeah. Um, and there's a component to it that does feel like a, a, a slightly pretentious mediation from, say, like a a an art student. <laughs> um, to which I <laughs> to that hit too close <laughs> to the bone. And I, I sort of looked at myself in the mirror for a second there. Um, but I you stood in the shower and contemplated yeah, life and started crying and played the mercy seat and and ate a falafel and ate a falafel, dude. Stop saying falafel. I'm hungry as fuck. Oh. But, like, um, but I I'm very much interested to look into this film. I think it's it's look into the film to look at, look further into this film to rewatch it to look into the to the original text and to look into what this yeah. guy's done as well. Yeah, I've def I'm definitely curious to check out maybe the um uh yeah the novel mm. it's based on and see maybe the points of difference between the two. Yeah. Um like I mentioned before, I think the main point of difference is it does feel more like loose snapshots in the novel than it does in the film. Um also, really want to check out the film again. Um, yeah, yeah. I like. I definitely rewatch it again. Um, I would. Yeah. Yeah. I. I like. I really. I just watched it at a weird time. Like, I really did enjoy it. I just watched it like late at night, and you know, I was a little bit exhausted from the day, kind of thing. And so, like, the third act for me kind of just kind of blurs into a mm. uh, blurs into one. But also, like, I don't think that's the film's fault. I think that's just my mm. fault for watching it at yeah. a weird time. I think the thing that I really liked about it and it kind of it kind of went beyond necessarily engaging in the film was just the fact that I enjoyed the rendering of those people and w- the relatability. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm a little bit like 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 that that kind of person where you know you, you don't necessarily know where you're going in life but you've got these passions that you're going to that you're going to work at yeah. um with all that you've got. Um but the the necessity for stability in life is is chasing you as it does this character in this movie. Yeah. Um. So I really enjoyed it for that reason, and I really enjoyed you know the rendering of that of that of that culture, which I think is something that yeah. I can speak for myself, but I, I think the same with you that we're both sort of a part of, but in yeah. the twenty tens. Yeah. I yeah I quite liked that whole commentary on on the frustrations and anxieties of of these this alternative kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. and. Yeah, just how it paints a bigger picture of, of of these group of people than what it might perceive perceivably be. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I quite enjoy this movie. And in the and in the the scope of the director's other work, I mean, like I say, we'll, we'll probably check Dogs in Space. Oh uh, yeah, at for a later sure. Time, if that's the kind of thing yeah. that you're into, but uh, it'll be some time after this, just because not just because we don't want to do two things by the same director at once, but they're more than that. They're really similar more movies, like, similar. Yeah. yeah. And again, there's Nick Cave in that, and there's there's Iggy Pop in that. And there's yeah. like, it's, it's quite a good movie. I might, yeah. I might watch that tonight. But um, <laughs> he died with a falafel in his hands. Go check it out. It's on Stan. It's on Stan. It's could be on SBS. I think. Yeah. I think it's it is definitely something that will stay in Stan's catalogue. I feel. I hope it does. I know that I've seen it 
available fairly cheaply on JB in JB Hi-Fi, and I'm I'm keen to go and check it out. Yeah, I don't want it to be one of those movies that that stops getting pressed on DVD because of uh, a lack of interest. I mean, yeah. like Dogs in Space had a a re-release in 2009. I wouldn't mind this getting a re-release, like on a Blu-ray rendering, because Dogs in Space got a Blu-ray rendering. Yeah, and I can see this one being on a similar, if not higher. Um, plane of recognition than Dogs in Space. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't mind a, a, an HD rendering of it. We didn't also didn't talk about Clayton Jacobson's episode. Clayton Jacobson's in it. Yeah, yeah. Holy, I forgot about that. Totally. Yeah, it's like a crossover between podcast episodes. But yeah, yeah, of he just Kenny cro- fame, Clayton Jacobson. Yeah, he just crops up in this, and I was like, oh, look, yeah, there a he clean is. shaven Jacobson. Yeah. Like, he, he looks so much like Shane for a second. He does, yeah. I was he like, hey, like minute, is this the right Jacobson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he does. And, I mean, we, we didn't mention a Sophia Lee connection. She's in Muriel's Wedding and the, and the Castle. Oh, yeah. Who you don't see that often now. She was in a film with PJ Hogan, who's the director of Muriel's Wedding. Not Paul Hogan. Not Paul Hogan, but his name is Paul Hogan. Yeah. PJ is actually Paul John. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, she was in his later effort alongside Tony Collette again, uh, called Mental, which I really dislike. Ooh. Strike. Fuck it. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. And we're not doing it for the pot now. I'd love to do that for the pot. <laughs> well, I, that's the thing. Like the in Part of us choosing a, something that we hadn't seen was predicated on the fact that it meant that we were unaware of what the other thought about it. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, like I've said many a time in the in previous episodes... I'm really keen for us to get to a film that at least one of us really hates. Really despises. Because I mean, I feel like you and you and I agree on a lot of more a lot of yeah. things. Like yeah. we, we've yeah. got a fair bit of common ground. I'm just waiting for one of us to say something that the other really objects to. <laughs> just like, you'd be like, I actually didn't like the uh, the magic pudding. And then <laughs> and a gun- I'd be like, what? And then they hear a gunshot and like me slump to the floor. <laughs> oh, is the magic pudding on stand? You know. Oh, I hope it is. Where can I find Magic Pudding? Magic Pudding. Hold on, let me Google this. Because I might even watch it even if it's not for the purposes of the podcast. I'm keen to revisit that. Mm. I'm keen to look into, like... Uh, uh, do I mention this in the pod? Yeah, I did an Australian Screen Studies unit and we did um, Australian animation um, with a focus on, a, on adult-oriented Australian animation, and by that I mean things like Mary, Mary and Max yeah, and yeah. 99 Cents, not pornographic animation. <laughs> um, but then also the children's animation, and I was surprised that there is actually a fair, a fair amount of Australian children's animation that just kind of slips my mind when I think of stuff that's come out of Australia. But, of course, you've got, like, Blinky Bill. Yeah. You've got uh, The Magic Pudding. Magic and pudding. you've got... Uh, John Cleese is in it. He is, of course. He is. Have you seen that show, Bluey, that's kind of taking people by storm? I, I think I'm a little bit too old for Bluey, but I have heard No, I don't, I don't been... mean you watch it, like, yeah. in the morning with your cereal, <laughs> but, like, have you, have you seen it? Like, yeah, I've seen people talk about that. It's um, quite endearing. It's yeah, like, it's, yeah. And it's got a... It's, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's it's on the the sort of uh, the ubiquity of appeal that something like Wallace and Gromit has, where you can watch it as an adult and as a child. I think it's it's still quite geared towards kid friendly to to, yeah. to children, but it is strangely entertaining and strangely heartwarming. Yeah, like yeah. it's quite enjoyable. Yeah, quite enjoyable. Quite enjoyable. Quite enjoyable. I mean, we're we're inclined to pick all manner of things to watch for the podcast. Probably won't pick Bluey just quietly, but like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Maybe we will. Yeah. Just to piss off Lachlan. Yeah, because we need to we need to broaden our fan base to the under eights. Under eights. I mean, <laughs> while you, while he died with you, a falafel <laughs> in his hand, is probably going to draw in all the kindergartners. We could need you imagine a dead like cert. all the under eights listening to our back catalogue? Just being like, Mum, oh, can yes, I watch the done... proposition? <laughs> he's like, he's done blue, blue. He can't wait to watch a hundred blood acres. <laughs> you know, I think and that's a... a Morgan Brothers guarantee. <laughs> I think as a ch- uh, like da- Danger Five, with the exception of some of the blood and gore, I think you could en- you'd enjoy that as a kid. That like it's not it's not very rude. There's not there's not yeah. swearing. It's not overly sexual. I mean. I would say that in the sense that, like, when I was younger, I was shown from, like, my parents and, like, aunts and uncles and stuff like that, reruns of, like, MASH mm. and Get Smart and, like, the the original Get yeah. Smart. Um, so, I, and those kind of shows, or, 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 say, for example, like, MASH, like, yeah, they did kind of get away with some stuff, but, like, I didn't really pick up on it mm. to begin with. So, like, yeah, I could see maybe some kids getting away with watching Danger Five. Yeah, because I'm thinking back to it now, uh, and with it fresh in my mind, having watched it for, for the for the last episode of the podcast, I don't know that there's anything especially objectionable. But I guess the, the risk you'd be taking is you go into Danger Five knowing that it's all a satire and that it's... um. It's yeah, it's taking the piss. But if you're a kid, you might think they're taking it seriously, and I guess that could potentially be harmful. Potentially, I mean, the extent to which they that 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 as a satire is also satirizing things that still prevail now. But I mean, I guess the risk is: do you want a bunch of kids running around going "Shut up, Claire"? I mean, there's probably a lot worse things that they could be saying, but... Yeah, but going around to, like, yeah. their sister or their mother yeah, going, shut suppose, up, yeah. Claire. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I suppose there are there are objectionable things in that show, but I think the, the I think its entertainment value is kind of all-encompassing. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing that would, that would qualify it is the, the way it looks. I think it, it would, it has a very appealing look. Colourful look. Yeah, yeah, it's got a very vibrant look. And I think the second... Let's, we're talking about Danger 5. Um, <laughs> we're I back think, here again. <laughs> Danger 5, part two. Um, yeah, I th- yeah, I'm trying to think. Is it really objectionable? You're, you're probably right. I think I'm probably giving it more uh, credit as it's, something that you Like, it's not obviously harmful, but I could see it maybe potentially being a bit more risky than what one might think it would be. As in it normalizes things that it's rendering in the context well, of the show. For yeah, because because I feel like satiric I purposes. feel like an adult can pick up and look and I mean obviously you do get kids 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 are smart. It really depends. Like you might get a kid that will look and go, Oh, this is a satire or whatever. Mm. But then you do might At get At the age some, of three. You might get some other kids that would just look and go, think that, oh, this is normal. It's okay to belittle women and to, you know, to have to go in yellow face and stuff like that. Yeah, I, did, I forgot about the yellow face, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I take your point. That's Yeah, that's a fair yeah. point. That's a fair point. But anyway, what are we watching next time? 
What are we watching next time? Next next time we're watching again a film that neither Jesse neither of us have watched. And I'm and I've I've got a lot of free time, and so I'm I've got a lot of DVDs that are like just stacked on my shelf that I need. Yeah. To, I'll, I'll mention that later. We're gonna watch Samson, Samson and Delilah. Yeah, the, Warwick Thornton. The Warwick Thornton film. Two thousand nine, which weirdly I've I've it's a good year. A good year. What happened in two thousand nine that you that you love? Oh, I just like it was just an instinctive. All right, reaction. Stri- I thought you were like, like oh, good no, vintage. No, for me, okay. The reason why I say it's a good year is like in between two thousand and seven to two thousand and nine was when I started really paying attention to like music and films and stuff like that. So for me. Because before that, you know, I was too young to re- really, you know, like, bef- before 2007 to 2009, like, YouTube didn't really, wasn't really a thing, and, like, you know, I wasn't able to access a lot of, like, music and Am I right in stuff. thinking, this isn't kind of a side note, but you mentioned that thing about YouTube, am I right in thinking that that, that was established in 2006? 2005, I think it was. Something like that? I'm going to look that I up. I remember being... No. I don't want to sound ignorant. I remember... Oh. You want to know how I was introduced to YouTube? How? Yeah. Uh, I think I was in year three. You're in... That would be year uh, 2006. Yeah. If I you're th- the same as me, yeah. Yeah. I think I was in year three. It started in 2005. And my... On Valentine's Day. Oh, nice. I was in... Um, uh, so my primary school, uh, we had one subject or a week, which was, uh, was called language other than English. And for my primary school, we learned Japanese mm-hmm. and our Japanese teacher, such a cool guy. Like he, I remember there's one afternoon we were just all mucking around and not doing any work or anything like that. And he just kind of didn't care. And he was like, Hey guys, check this out. It's this new website. It's called YouTube. <laughs> and he was just like Googling like 240p music videos and stuff. I like remember, that. remember the YouTube quote, but remember back then you didn't care. Yeah. You didn't Like you care. didn't notice. And then you look at it now and like, you look at videos you that were uploaded. You complain when it's in. not 1080. <laughs> yeah. But you're like, you, you look at when uh, there are videos on there that, are, that were published in like 2007, 2006, and the quality is just mm. so shitty. Yeah. Talking about like foreign languages, and this is now just like the Lachlan and Jesse talk about <laughs> their life podcast. Yeah. I, like I, I grew up in the country and there was a time where we learned Noongar. Oh, like, really? Like we learned the Noongar language and that was pretty dope. Um, so Samson Delilah. I mean, uh, yeah, I've... Going back to 2009 real quick, that's also the year that Mary and Max and the Watchmen film hey, came out. yes. Yeah. Linking it all Linking back. Linking it all together. All together. Um, um, but yeah, I, ne- I haven't seen this, but I've seen uh, Warwick Thornton's most recent directorial effort, which was Sweet Country. Mm-hmm. Amazing film. Released in 2017, and it is a, it's a fantastic film. Mm. Um. And I've really been meaning to watch more of Warwick Thornton's stuff. Unfortunately, that's the only film I've seen of his. Um, and I 
did initially think of maybe picking We Don't Need a Map, which was his uh, documentary that he made in mm. the same year. But I thought maybe that one's just a little bit too recent. Um, and also, it's quite limited in its availability at this stage. Mm. So I thought, why don't we move on to um, something that really kind of launched his career, which was Samson and yeah. Delilah. Um, I think as well, we uh, definitely need to be talking about uh, films like this because it's so easy for us to just pick films that represent, you know, the white Australian aspect of society um, and films, you know, like the Indigenous population makes up a huge portion of Australia's population in total. So it's like we definitely need to be, you know, talking about our history, not just glossing over it because that's what we've done in the past and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm really curious to check this one out. I, I, I've i heard good things about it. I've heard a lot of good things about it as well. I've also heard people enjoying it but not enjoying the experience of watching it. Um, mm, yeah. In, in the sense of it being, you know, a, you know, either traumatic or having a, dealing with, a, with well, unpleasant things. I mean, things that and... is what a lot of... When looking back onto some Australian films I've seen with that feature Indigenous people in a historical uh, context is like, yeah, a lot of it is quite hard to watch. Because, well, we got that with the proposition as well. Yeah, with the proposition, uh, with definitely Sweet Country yeah, and the with the Nightingale. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to watch, but it's just, unfortunately, that's just history. It's mm. what's happened, and we can't, we, we can't ignore it. Um, it's obviously horrible, horrible things that have happened to those people. Um, but, yeah, we, it's definitely something that is interesting to look into. You also mentioned there the, the discussion of, of or the, the possibility of looking at his documentary film. I think that would be another thing that we should check out in terms yeah. of documentaries. Like, we haven't done a documentary yet. Yeah, no, we haven't. Um, um, what I, I'm, I'm curious to check that one out because um, I don't know much about it, but I have seen a couple of stills, and it's like he's going around places like in like the outback, and he's made these little miniatures out of twigs, and he's put little hats and stuff like that on them. And I remember, actually, I went to uh, the Australian Centre for Moving Image at the start of this year in Melbourne. And they have, you know, some memorabilia dedicated to Australian cinema. And they had a little uh, tiny uh, corner in the room dedicated to that film. And they had some of the little miniatures there. So, like, I'm, I, I don't know what what the context behind that is, but, like, I'm... Interested to find out. Yeah, interested to see where it goes with that. Similarly, Richard Lowenstein's most recent effort was a documentary about Michael Hutchins that had uh, that came out this year and I yeah. saw in, at Luna. And to my understanding, like, they've got a lot of home video footage from the Hutchins family and also things that Michael Hutchins has filmed himself in, you know, like, uh, sort of just amateur day-to-day life yeah. uh, style footage. Um, that would also be a pretty cool thing to, to talk about. Yeah, Similarly, definitely... that's 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 a recent movie, and I believe is coming out on DVD or Blu-ray fairly soon. Or, oh, yeah, for sure. Know. We'll definitely check that out at some point. But, yeah. In the meantime. In the meantime, 
Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Did I finish last week with that weird bar? I think I did. Meh. Noise. Insert noise here. Insert what where? Everywhere. Ew.